Well, good morning. We are in a study in the book of 2 Samuel in your Old Testaments. encourage you to turn in your copy of the scripture to 2 Samuel. Remember, originally, there would not have been a division between 1 and 2 Samuel. It would have just been the book of Samuel. And we see the themes running through 1 and 2 Samuel as if there's not a division. We find one of these major themes of being God's right to rule. God and God alone is Israel's king. Now we see in these in first and second Samuel that God chooses representatives on earth to uh, demonstrate his rule, first King Saul and then David. But in 1 Samuel chapter 15, God communicates to Saul through the prophet Samuel that he's removing him as Israel's king because of his sin, his disobedience. And in chapter 16 of 1 Samuel, God sends Samuel the prophet to anoint David as the next king of Israel. Fifteen years plus passes. And as we come to 2 Samuel 3 last week, we see God bringing about that promise that he had made 15 years earlier to David. The house of Saul continues to diminish. The house of David continues to increase. And we saw last week that even when men would follow their own sinful desires and hearts and have their own agenda, God could still take those acts of willful disobedience and weave them, orchestrate them into carrying out his plan. We saw King Ishbosheth, who, remember, ruled over the northern part of Israel, make an accusation against his general, Abner. And Abner, as a result, said, I'm just going to take the northern tribes and hand them over to David. And then we saw Joab, David's nephew, murder Abner. And God, even in that act, uses it, weaves it together to carry out his purposes. And all of Israel saw David's deep grief and saw him as a right man, a good king. Well, today in chapter 4, we see actually a third instance of God taking a willful act of disobedience, a selfish act, an act of two men to position themselves in good stead in the new kingdom. And God will take that and use that selfishness, weave it into his plan in bringing David to the throne. And that is a third example of this overall tenor that we see in chapters 3 and 4. But today I want us to look at two sub-themes that we're going to find in chapter 4. One is a tendency that we see in chapter 4 that we see even today, and that is people, it's very easy for people to attribute to the Lord their own selfishness. And I want you to look for that in the first half 
of chapter 4 as we read it. And then I want you to note as we read through chapter 4 how David is able to do the right thing because he is living in light of what God has done for him in his life. He lives in light of God's deliverance for him, in light of God's redemption. I'm going to read the chapter in its entirety, and you can follow along in your copy of the scripture. 2 Samuel chapter 4, starting to read in verse 1. Now when Ishbosheth, Saul's son, heard that Abner had died in Hebron, he lost courage, and all Israel was disturbed. Saul's son had two men who were commanders of bands. The name of the one was Ba'anah, and the name of the other was Rechab, son of Ramon, the Berothite of the sons of Benjamin. For Beeroth is also considered part of Benjamin. And the Beerothites fled to Gatayim and have been aliens there until this day. Now Jonathan, Saul's son, had a excuse me, now Jonathan, Saul's son, had a son crippled in his feet. He was five years old when the report of Saul and Jonathan came from Jezreel, and his nurse took him up and fled. And it happened that in her hurry to flee, he fell and became lame. And his name was Mephibosheth. So the sons of Ramon the Berethothite, Rechab and Ba'anah, departed and came to the house of Ishbosheth in the heat of the day while he was taking his midday rest. They came to the middle of the house as if to get wheat, and they struck him in the belly, and Rechab and Ba'anah, his brother, escaped. Now when they came into the house, as he was lying on his bed in his bedroom, they struck him and killed him and beheaded him. And they took his head and traveled by way of the Arabah all night. Then they brought the head of Ishbetheth to David at Hebron, and said to the king, Behold the head of Ishbosheth, the son of Saul, your enemy who sought your life. Thus the Lord has given my Lord the king vengeance this day on Saul and his descendants. David answered Rechab and Ba'anah, his brother, sons of Ramon the Berothite, and said to them, As the Lord lives, who has redeemed my life from all distress, when one told me, saying, Behold, Saul is dead, and thought he was bringing good news, I seized him and killed him in Ziklag, which was reward I gave for his good news. How much more when wicked men have killed a righteous man in his own house on his bed, shall I not now require his blood from your hand and destroy you from the earth? Then David commanded the young men, and they killed him and cut off their hands and feet and hung them up beside the pool in Hebron. But they took the head of Ishbosheth and buried it in the grave of Abner in Hebron. We're going to see a contrast again here in chapter 4. A contrast between these two commanders in Ishbosheth's army who are 
working out a plan that they think will put them in good position with David, not trying to walk in obedience to the Lord. And yet they attribute their sinful actions to the Lord. In comparison to those two, we see David, who's living out every day in light of, through the grid of, his redemption, his deliverance that God has bestowed upon him. You see, David sees that God has a purpose for him, that his life is not his own that he continually, as he goes through just everyday occurrences, seeks what is God's will in this for me. He, He takes time before he acts to inquire of the Lord, should I do this? The last two summers, my wife and I, Barbara, have taken road trips. Two summers ago, we went to New England and spent time in Vermont and New Hampshire and Maine and Boston. Last summer, we went to the Outer Banks of North Carolina. And this summer, we plan somewhere to go to the East Coast again. Now, there's a difference between Barbara and me. My wife is an enjoy-the-journey person. I am a destination guy. I get into the car, make sure that my GPS is set on quickest route, and then just take off. Because the destination is all that matters. Barbara enjoys the journey. Now, what if she's right? What if there are things that I should see and do along the way? What if I should take a few moments periodically and evaluate and think through my path and ask the question, should we go here or should we go here? David understood that the journey was not his He viewed his journey, his life, through a different lens than most people. And today, that's what we want to see in this passage, and the principle that can be applied to us, that just as David viewed his life through a different lens, so do you and so do I have a need to view our lives through a different lens as well. And that's what we'll see here in 1 Samuel 4. The first thing I want us to do is look at these two wicked guys in verses 1 through 8. Ba'ana and Rechab. They are going to act selfishly. And yet, they try to somehow justify what they've done by attributing their actions to God. Verse 1 says this, Now when Ishbosheth, Saul's son, heard that Abner had died in Hebron, he lost courage and all Israel was disturbed. Ishbosheth is scared. Remember, Abner was the real power 
behind Ishbosheth's reign. Ishbosheth was a puppet king at best. Israel had a very specific charge to the king. A job description, if you will. We see it in 1 Samuel chapter 8, verse 20. And in 1 Samuel chapter 8, verse 20, we read about Israel's expectations for what the king should accomplish. It says this, that we also may be like all the nations, that our king may judge us and go out before us and fight our battles. So Israel wants a king who's a great warrior, a deliverer, one who will be mighty in battle and lead them on to victory. Ishbosheth is the first to tell you he's weak. Abner is the strength, and Abner has been murdered. And it tells us in verse 1 that Ishbosheth has lost courage. And in response to that, look at Israel's response. All Israel was disturbed. That's my New American Standard says disturbed. That's a little bit of a weak translation for the Hebrew word there. I like with the New Living Translation, how they translate it. It says, all Israel was paralyzed with fear. That's the word. They are terrified. They are scared because they have no leader and no one to defend them against their arch rivals, the Philistines. Without a leader, we will be taken captive. Without a leader, we will be weak. Without a leader, we cannot be victorious in battle. So two of Ishbosheth's commanders, Ba'anah and Rechab, say, hey, we'll take care of this. They pretend like they are going into the king's residence to get some grain, to get some wheat. Hey, we're getting low on bread. Instead, it's midday and Ishbosheth is taking a nap. They go into his room. They thrust a, uh, a sword or, or a knife, a dagger into his abdomen and they kill him. And then it tells us, they behead him. And they bring his head to David, traveling all night on back roads so they won't be detected in territory who are committed to Saul's house. And they come to David and say, hey, we've got proof of it. We have solved your problem. We've brought you the head of your enemy. We are giving you the kingdom. Now, in the midst of this description, there's a little parenthesis in verse 4. Verse 4 reminds us that Ishbosheth was not the last descendant of Saul. There's a grandson named Mephibosheth. Mephibosheth is Jonathan's son. And the verse tells us that when word came that Saul, Mephibosheth's grandpa, and Jonathan, Mephibosheth's dad, had been killed in battle, that Mephibosheth's nurse, Mephibosheth is five years old, his nurse grabs him and starts to run and she falls and drops Mephibosheth. His feet are broken and from that point forward he's crippled. It seems like verse 4 doesn't really fit in this section, except 
We're introduced to him for, I think, three reasons. One, we're going to see Mephibosheth over and over and over again in the book of 2 Samuel. Secondly, we, without this verse, we would think that Ishbosheth was the last descendant of Saul, but he's not. But the verse also tells us that Israel would not enthrone Mephibosheth because he is crippled. Remember that mandate for the king? He has to lead them in battle. He has to be a mighty warrior. And so verse 4 lets us know that with Ishbosheth out of the way, the way is paved for David to become king. You would think David would be happy, but he's not. He's deeply grieved because these men have murdered Ishbosheth. They've sinned against their God. Look at the end of verse 8. They bring David, Ishbosheth's head, and they say this. Thus the Lord has given my Lord the king vengeance this day on Saul and his descendants. These guys, all they were doing was working an angle. They were trying to position themselves in getting a good appointment in David's new government. They were, they were playing politics. Selfishly. And yet, they attribute their actions to the Lord. The Lord has given my Lord the king vengeance this day. It's very easy for people to cover their selfish actions by attributing to God what they do. I grew up in a family that played rook. It's a card game. Great card game. But it was part of the DNA of our family. Every holiday we played Rook. All holidays were pretty much the same. We'd travel to the farm where my grandparents were in the morning. We'd have a mammoth dinner. The men would sleep for a little while in recliners. Then we'd go for an afternoon pheasant hunt. Then we'd come back and eat some more pie, and then we'd play Rook for the rest of the evening. It's a great way to grow up. I was aghast when I went to college and found that so many people across this country play Rook wrong. They don't know the rules. It's like, what country did you come from? It's like... The right way to play Rook is that the Rook card, we affectionately refer to as the Old Crow, is the highest card in the deck. It's the highest trump. It can take anything. Whenever you whip it out, you are going to be victorious. But there's these people that play it as the lowest card in the deck. Where do they come from? Some people play middle rook, where it's worth between the 10 and the 11. I just, oh, if you grew up that way, I apologize. We'll have to play some rook together. It's the highest card. It's the trump card. It's the rook card. When you play that, you're going to win. 
You know what these guys are doing here? They're using the Lord as their rook card. They're going to trump their actions by saying, the Lord was in this. And here's a lesson for us today. Be careful when people attribute their actions to the Lord selfishly. We James talks about one form of attributing our sinful actions to the Lord in James chapter 1 when he says in verse 13, let no one say when he is tempted, I'm being tempted by God, for God cannot be tempted by evil, and he himself does not tempt anyone. But each one is tempted by each one is tempted when he's carried away and enticed by his own lust. Here, these guys are totally acting out of selfishness, not obedient to the Lord at all, and yet they play the trump card. The Lord did this. Not always, but sometimes when you hear people use phrases like, well, the Lord laid this on my heart. The Lord told me to do this. Always make sure that you test those kind of phrases with the Word of God. Sometimes people use a phrase like that, to, like a rook card. And really, their heart is not acting out of love, but out of an agenda. And they use it as a power move, just like these guys. So just because someone tells you, the Lord told me to come and say this to you, doesn't mean that the Lord sent them to you. And here, these two men are working an angle, and they're using the Lord like a trump card. David isn't swayed. In comparison to these two guys, David acts rightly. And there's a reason why he does. There's a reason why he is able to do the right thing in this situation. It's because he has a different lens. And we're going to see in verses 9 through 12 that we as believers are to live with the same lens that David has. David doesn't just view his daily life as his own journey. Rather, he views his life as one in which God has a purpose. That he, and we'll see throughout the the next chapters, David continually seeking, taking time back, taking a step back, saying, God, should I do this? Should I head this direction? God, should I uh, follow this pathway? Because David has a different lens. He is viewing his life through the lens of God's redemption for him. Verse 9, David answered Rechab and Ba'anah, his brother, and he says to them this, As the Lord lives, who has redeemed my life from all distress, when one told me, saying, Behold, Saul is dead, and thought he was bringing good news, 
I seized him and killed him in Ziklag, which was the reward I gave him for his news. Remember, we read about this in 2 Samuel chapter 1, verses 14 through 16. The Amalekite came and said, Hey, I came across Saul. He was in desperate pain. He asked me to thrust his sword through him, and I did just to help him. And here is his royal crown and his royal armlet. I'm bringing you the kingdom. And David said, called for that Amalekite's execution. Because he did not hesitate to touch the anointed of God. And David reminds these two men of how he handled that. And then he says in verse 11, how much more? When wicked men have killed a righteous man in his own house on his bed, shall I not require his blood from your hand and destroy you from the earth? And so he orders their execution. And it tells us in verse 12, they killed them, cut off their hands and feet, hung them up beside the pool in Hebron. If you look at Deuteronomy chapter 21, verses 22 through 23, you'll see that hanging one up in a tree was a sign of God's curse on that one. And here, David does the right thing by punishing these men who followed their own plan, followed their own sinful, selfish act of disobedience, and murdered Ishbosheth. What I want us to notice is this little phrase at the end of verse 9. This is David's justification for why they acted wrongly and why he didn't need them to act at all. He says, as the Lord lives, who has redeemed my life from all distress. You see, here, David is saying, I use a different lens through which I view life. God has redeemed my life. Now, this particular use of that Hebrew word in this passage in the Old Testament carries the idea of delivering. So David is saying, the Lord has delivered me from distress all my life. You think about David guarding his father's sheep and and killing a lion with his bare hands, slaying Goliath. Time after time, Saul pursued him, wanted him dead, and God delivered David. Time after time after time, he redeemed him from danger. So David's point is this. I didn't need you two guys to go kill Ishbosheth. God is my deliverer. I didn't need you to act on my behalf or somehow attribute murder to the Lord's hand. God is the one who takes care of me. God is the one who guides me in my daily life. God promised me the throne. God is a big enough God. He'll give me the throne. You two men, I didn't need. You see, David views his everyday life through a different lens. It's not just his journey It's his journey assigned to him by the Lord. It's his journey that God has him on. My youngest son is on spring break. He's never been able to have a spring break before since he's been in college. 
because of athletics, but his team did not make it into their tournament this year, so he actually has a spring break. He called me up and says, Dad, I think I'm going to go to Montana. Cool. So he jumped in a van with all of his roommates, and they drove to Big Sky, Montana. He's young. He'd save the money for the trip. He just did it. Someday, he will get married. And he will have a new lens. That he can't just say, well, I think tomorrow I'll go to Montana. No, there's a new lens when you get married. There's more people involved in the decision than just you. What you do affects other people. You start viewing life through a whole new lens. As followers of Jesus Christ, we are to have a new lens It's a lens like David has here. You see, David is able to rest and wait on God to fulfill his promises to him. Why? Because he views life through the lens of God's redemption. Here in this passage, God's deliverance. Time after time after time, God has delivered him from trouble. Why wouldn't he now? You see, David is able to rest because he has a lens that's different from other people's. He has a lens that reminds him that he's on a journey, but it's God's journey. The verses that we opened the service with this morning were not by mistake because they are verses that reminds us that just as David recognized God's redemption in his life, God has redeemed us as well, except he's done more than just deliver us from trouble. He has delivered us. He has purchased us out of our bondage to our sin and our bondage to a future without God. And so Peter writes in verse 18, knowing that you were not redeemed with perishable things like silver or gold from your futile way of life inherited from your forefathers, but with precious blood as of a lamb unblemished and spotless, the blood of Christ. Now, if you look at the verse right before those two verses, it talks about living life with a lens of the redemption of Jesus Christ. Because it says, if you address his father, the one who impartially judges according to each man's work, conduct yourselves in fear during the time of your stay on earth. There's a transitory nature to that verse. This is not our home. We are on a pathway. It's not just our pathway. We are to view it as God's pathway for us. God has a pathway for you. He has a pathway for me. We have an obligation to seek Him on that pathway. The decision is not ours. We are not to just be destination people. We need to think about the journey. What does God have for me in this circumstance today? Living it in light of our redemption. David said, as the Lord lives the one who redeemed me, my life from all distress. Because he recognized what God has done for him time after time after time, he could rest in the fact that he didn't have to grab the throne. He could wait for it. Because of the fact that he waited on God, 
he was able to deal with these two men definitively. When they sinned, he punished them. He did the right thing because he viewed his circumstances through the lens of God's redemption. And you and I, every day, that's what's so neat about the books of Samuel. It's just everyday life. And in our everyday lives, we too need to be viewing our lives as not a journey that's our own, but rather through a lens of redemption. That God, since I am purchased by the blood of Jesus, what does that have to say about how I'm spending my time this week? Am I spending enough time with people who need Jesus? Am I being deliberate about that? What does that have to say about my finances? What does that have to say about my service, my utilization of the gifts that God has given me, my spiritual gifts? Am I spending too much time devoted to work? Am I spending enough time serving Jesus? Am I serving Jesus in my work? Am I living with purpose? You see, David's lens here enabled him to rest in the Lord and to do the right thing. Living in light of redemption through the lens of redemption allows believers to do the right thing. Every day, it should be part of our thinking that we have been purchased with the blood of Jesus Christ. We are not our own. What does God have for me today? In this situation, with this set of circumstances, am I looking to Him? Am I expressing my dependence on Him? Am I looking to the Lord through the lens of His redemption? Father, I thank You for First Samuel chapter 4 for the encouragement that it brings us of what you have done for us and accomplished for us and our need to live in light of your redemption. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.